0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
1: Heads up for listeners. This episode features audio of protests and police brutality.
0: When you're surrounded by tear gas, your nose, your mouth, the area around your eyes, like, starts to burn. You can't stop crying. Your chest kind of feels like it's collapsing onto itself. It's difficult to breathe. You're producing all kinds of snot and, like, saliva, and it's gross. You feel the anxiety that comes with not being able to breathe properly.
1: This is my friend and former colleague, Roberto Daza. He's a TV producer for Vice News. Last week, Daza and his crew arrived in Minneapolis to cover the George Floyd protests.
0: Curfew was in effect. There were peaceful protests that were still happening at the time, but law enforcement, state troopers, local PD made their presence felt quite quickly. You would see Minneapolis police officers in regular attire, regular uniform, patrolling the area. And then over the course of the night, it kind of changed. You see more law enforcement wearing riot gear, wearing helmets, holding batons. Like the mood just changed in correlation to what we were seeing. So I've done a lot of conflict zone coverage throughout my career, probably over the last like 10 years, deployments around the world in places like Venezuela, clashes between law enforcement and residents in South Africa, in Colombia, in Mexico, it's completely normal in Venezuela that anytime you decide to like take out a camera or any law enforcement notices that you're a journalist or a television producer or something, they will purposely target you and shoot tear gas your way or try to hit you with a rubber bullet. But this is the first time that I've had that sense in the U.S. I am, you know, a gay Latin male. And I tick off a lot of boxes in, like, different tribes. Like, sometimes you end up being the brunt of aggression or, or prejudice. But this is the first time I've kind of had a sense that I was being targeted because I was a journalist.
1: Law enforcement officers across America have been cracking down on civilians who are protesting in the streets. Today on the show, we're taking a look at one controversial crowd dispersal technology that many feel qualifies as excessive force. Tear gas. I'm Ariel Dimroth. This is Reset.
0: The moment that myself and my co-producer were tear-gassed, I was filming a police line. It was their first like real presence in riot gear and in formation that I saw that evening up close. And you know, I have to deliver for a news show, so I'm filming it. We ain't doing nothing wrong. Two protesters who were walking very slowly towards them, holding hands, they were arm in arm towards the cops, and they must have been like 40, 50 feet away from them. They just started firing tear gas canisters at them. The first canister gets one of the gentlemen in the leg. The other one hits a, another one in the stomach. They continue the fire. One falls down they realize that this, these canisters are not gonna stop coming towards them, so they make their way off the street. And simultaneously, I'm on the other end of the street, closer to the cops, and they just start firing directly at me. So they fire a tear gas canister, it lands at our feet. It is a very recognizable image, like you just know. You know the, the sound of that canister hitting the ground. It has like a very unique echo in my mind and then you see the white smoke come up and yeah, it's tear gas. We're kind of walking backwards to get out of this area and I'm filming the tear gas canister on the ground and then uh, I don't know whom, obviously it had to be one of the officers, fires a baton round that hits me right beneath my ribs on my back. It's like literally a little baton, like I think it's made of plastic. They fire another one. Honestly, I can't speak for all protesters, even in like the general vicinity, but everybody in my proximity, in proximity of me within eyesight was peaceful. You know, they were loud, they were boisterous, they were passionate, sure, they were angry, but like there was all peaceful protesting. That's kind of the environment that we found ourselves in before the whole situation in the gas station parking lot. Michael, the correspondent, um, was making his way back to our vehicle so we could leave when the police arrived. And then that's when you see him on his knees, hands up, with his press ID in his right hand, identifying himself as press. Press! Press! Myself and my crew, my co-producer, Amel, press, press, were identifying press. ourselves as press. Our hands were up. And then a cop approaches Michael, makes him get on his stomach, so Michael is prone on the ground, face down. I am press. I don't care if down. Okay, I'm down, I'm down. Hey. Michael, our correspondent, at this point, okay. is on the ground. He has repeatedly, very loudly, identified himself as press. His press card, I can still see it. It is, like, in his right hand, right above his head, as he's lying on his stomach. And the first officer doesn't consider him a threat, walks right past him. A second officer passes Michael, and the guy kind of just takes a step back and decides to spray him in the face. I am press. Please, just- I was just like, holy shit, this guy just assaulted Michael. (laughs) I was just sprayed in the face with pepper spray. Currently have my head on the ground. And I was filming, so this is like a fine line you have to walk of, like, making sure that Michael, the correspondent, leaves with us and is safe and doesn't end up in a situation where I can't get a hold of him or don't know where he is. And also realizing that whoever can should be filming right now, because this is really the only protection that we have. Um, because if it's not documented, accounts of what happens varies. You know, there's a sense that, like, if it doesn't exist on video, it is just something we don't talk about. But they had pepper sprayed a mel, They had pepper sprayed our vehicle. They pe- shot pepper spray into our vehicle. There was another reporter who... You know, was there by himself, so he was in the back of our minivan, and an officer saw him back there and decided to spray directly into our van for a really long, long duration of pepper spray into the vehicle directly at him um, while the back door was closed, so all he could do is stew and marinate and pepper spray and camera gear. Just seeing that moment out of everything that happened that night, like, that was the part that really stuck with me, just the casualness of it all. I'm used to it anywhere else. Like if I was in Gaza or if I was in Venezuela or if I was in Mexico, sure, fire away. That's just kind of like the job we signed up for. But I just wasn't expecting it at home.
1: You know, I got to tell you, Daza, having worked with Amel, having worked with Daniel Vergara, the, the camera operator that you were working with, having worked with you, hearing this story is like... It's making me tear up. And I totally understand everything that you did when you were there, but I'm just so upset that that happened to you.
0: You know, what happened to Michael was just, you know, I just, there's no excusing it. Like in any way.
1: Do you think police should be able to use tear gas against protesters?
0: You know, I honestly, I don't know. I don't know the, 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 the scope or the range of law enforcement tactics that you use to like handle crowds. So I I really want to be able to say the one thing that strikes me is that this is often a tactic deployed on peaceful protest, not just here in the U.S. It's just striking to me that that is like your first move. Like if you're thinking of a game of chess, you're using tear gas as like your pawn. If you think of the whole situation as just like one big physical dialogue, like when you're talking to someone, your first move isn't to yell directly into their face. Your opening move is just like a greeting, uh, a a non-threatening exchange. You know, so it's just odd to me, Um, no matter where in the world I am when this happens, um, when it comes to peaceful protests. And I am completely aware that I'm also not law enforcement. I am never on the other end of those lines. Um, I'm a reporter, so I don't participate in protest.
1: Is there anything else that you want people to know?
0: Uh, No, I I mean, maybe. Actually, yes. I mean, we're having a conversation about my experience as a reporter and as a producer. And, you know, this is... Just one, especially in this last week, it is just one of a litany of attacks against members of the press in the U.S. I don't know. It's a it's a concerning trend that I just don't see stopping anytime soon. And we should also keep in mind that no matter how you feel about the attacks that you heard happen to me and my co-producers or the trauma that we experienced, it doesn't compare to the trauma that, you know, the public here in Minneapolis endured. So I don't want to make it seem like this is an experience that should be about me and my profession. I can guarantee you that my colleagues feel that way. I can guarantee you that our correspondent Michael feels that way. My trauma does not compare. It does not compare to the experience of the public here on the ground in Minneapolis.
1: Roberto Daza is a producer for Vice News. Be sure to check out his reporting on the police response in Minneapolis. We linked to the TV segment he filmed and produced in the show notes. After the break, how we got here, the history of tear gas.
2: It's been a term that's always been sort of politically debated. The humanitarians would argue, why are we calling it that? That's not what it does. It should really be called choking vomit gas. And then you you had the politicians who wanted to push for tear gas to be used, who were like, let's just call it tear gas. It makes it sound gentle.
1: How tear gas went from a weapon of war to the police's go-to move for crowd dispersal. This is Reset. Hey, it's Tom
2: Warren, senior editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, it's Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad, It'll be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com forward slash notepad. That most people see these images of the cloud of smoke and they just almost see it as a backdrop. They don't really think about what it's doing, both on the level of what it's doing to those people who are suffering from it in that moment, as well as what it's doing in sort of a larger question of how democracy works and how power is maintained.
1: Anna Feigenbaum is an associate professor of communication and digital media at Bournemouth University in the UK. And she's the author of Tear Gas, From the Battlefields of World War I to the Streets of Today.
2: One of the things that I found in looking at this 100-year history of tear gas is that at all of the moments in which it was really heavily used, including this one, there was a crisis of power. There were people in power that were, in many cases, white supremacists, were economic elite, usually white, and were really seeing their power run thin. And it's at those moments where we have seen this sort of mass and somewhat indiscriminate deployment of tear gas and other forms of riot control like we're seeing today.
1: With that in mind, what exactly is the history of tear
2: gas? During the First World War, we saw... Uh, nation versions of tear gas being used uh, by the French as well as by the Germans and then later developed also by the United States. And what we also know is that, well, the tear gases weren't all that effective during uh, trench warfare. So their intention was to get people out of the trenches during the kind of stalemate that arose during the war. Uh, But they didn't work very well. There was lots of blowback. The chemical compounds just kind of hadn't quite been worked out. So when the war ended, there had been all this development put in already. And in the United States context, there was a general called General Amos Fries, and he became the leader of the chemical warfare service, which had been operating during the war and then it continued to operate in in peacetime. And one of the things that he did was he tried to turn a lot of the chemicals they'd been using in wartime for peacetime uses. And he started a massive campaign working with lawyers and publicists to create a market for where tear gases could be used. So largely that was law enforcement. It was also things like prisons, as well as things like bank security.
1: Wow. Okay. So it kind of sounds like the use of tear gas on civilians is an American thing.
2: It was also turned into policing technology in Germany. It was used really heavily early on in South Africa. So... There were a number of different countries that had the same idea, but the U.S. was definitely a very entrepreneurial force in this. A lot of the early exports that went to the big European colonies were coming from United States supply. The United States saw 10 percent of its chemists enlisted in war efforts. And so that meant that we had all the big chemical companies, a lot of leading chemists doing this work of developing weapons that no longer had a purpose for war and there was all that research and development going on, and so there became a really, really big push to have uses for these things um, on civilians or in
1: civilian life. When was the first documented case of tear gas, as we understand it being used on civilians and and I mean anywhere so
2: in the United States, we saw a lot of tear gas being used to crush the sort of labor movements. This was during a time where unions were quite strong in America, uh, and in the sort of lead-up to what was the Great Depression, we saw a lot of organizing being stopped uh, through the use
1: of tear gas. And when it was first used on civilians, you know, on a regular basis during these kinds of protests, like, how was it talked about in the news media? Was it seen as being a, a wonderful innovation, or was it viewed differently?
2: You saw something a little bit similar to what we see today. So the Trade publications for law enforcement and policing saw it as a wonderful invention that was going to be really helpful for police to be able to do their jobs. If you were reading a story that was from the perspective of the people who were having the tear gas used on them, it talked about it in a very different tone. You know, in the same way as today, we see people uh, lose eyes. We see people become suffocated by it. The same thing was true then
1: when we talk about tear gas in the news, technically speaking, what exactly are we talking about?
2: Well, when we think about
1: tear gas, we usually think about
2: those big, like white looking clouds that we see so often caught on video. And what we're seeing there is the chemical being dispersed into a cloud of smoke. So we call it a gas, but it's actually not a gas. Uh, It's like teeny droplets of, of liquid that Um, get dispersed through various ways. And that's why you can have tear gas both in a kind of smoke as well as in a spray and various other kinds of ways of dispersing or spreading it.
1: Okay. And is it like a a single chemical compound or is it like a bunch of different things? There's different kinds of tear gas. So the main one that gets used in
2: the US and and around the world is CS, which is the name of the chemical compound named after the guys who invented it. Uh, And It's also then mixed with other kinds of chemicals, depending on the ways that it's being dispersed and the quantity being used. Uh, It's very complicated. And I am not a chemist.
1: I mean, you wrote a whole book about it, so I can only assume that there is a lot to talk about here. But what's the difference between tear gas, mace and pepper spray?
2: Those are kind of the common terms that we uh, give to things. So pepper spray and tear gas are both sort of what we might think of as an umbrella term. So when we say pepper spray, we use that uh, colloquially or in an everyday sense to refer to anything that gets sprayed. But actually, pepper spray would be a certain kind of aerosol spray uh, that is derived from peppers, either organic or synthetic. But we also sometimes call pepper spray, even though it might actually be a CS spray, not a pepper spray. And then mace is actually a brand name, and mace can include OC, which is the the kind of pepper spray, um, or it can include CS, uh, or some versions of of mace actually include a combination of different chemicals. But normally we kind of use pepper spray to refer to anything that's been sprayed, and we use tear gas to refer to what we're seeing in those big clouds, um, which is not scientifically accurate, but is the way that it gets made sense of. You know, you have to understand that the history of riot control is also a marketing history. You know, these are products. It's a set of technologies that is obsessed with innovation, and money comes from very small and incremental changes and upgrades. And so it's useful to think about riot control in a similar way that we would think of any kind of technology that is constantly being upgraded and remarketed to us. Only
1: the police are the buyers. So what are the different ways that we see police deploy tear gas during protests?
2: Yeah, so right now we're seeing things um, that one company calls it the ballerina grenade. So it, it bounces up and down on the floor. And that was actually intentionally designed to stop what the police call throwback, um, which is when protesters pick up a canister and throw it back at police lines, though very often protesters are actually pick up canisters to just remove them and get them out of the way uh, to not harm people something we see, we're seeing a lot in the U.S. right now, which are, is a brand that's called Pepperball. And that's the thing that looks like a paintball. And it actually comes out of a, a sort of machine gun device in order to be able to fire lots and lots of pellets at a high frequency at people. And that was also developed in order to be able to hit more parts of someone's body because the larger impact munitions, the ones that we normally call rubber bullets, those you're supposed to be very careful about where you fire at someone because they can cause a lot of damage.
1: They kill people sometimes, right?
2: Yeah. So the big ones, if they hit someone in the head, they can kill or if they hit a vital organ. Whereas the little pepper balls, because they're smaller uh, and they, they, they like, I don't know, it's, it's really disturbing to look at their early marketing material because it's basically like we've developed something that you can now just use to like hit people a lot more.
1: What exactly does tear gas do to the human body?
2: The effects of tear gas go well beyond making people cry. They are intentionally designed to actually cause psychological trauma and physical pain. So trying to get people to do what you want by causing them as much pain and harm as possible without leaving lasting injury. So that is the goal in general of riot control technologies. What are the long-term
1: effects of tear gas?
2: The medical research... On the long term effects of tear gas are themselves a very politically contentious area. The majority of studies that are done on tear gas have been conducted by the military and by manufacturers. So it's very difficult to find independent studies. The small independent studies that do exist point towards uh, a concern that tear gas might cause lasting respiratory damage, that it could uh, worsen asthma. And we know that it does definitely have worse effects for people with asthma.
1: Okay, so there's still a lot of questions about the impact of tear gas, and I'm assuming that that is also dose-dependent, right? If you're going to go to multiple protests and encounter it multiple times, the impact might be stronger on you in the long term, but we don't really know.
2: So we would know that if you encounter it multiple times, the impact will be worse. The thing that really makes it worse is how much is fired and in how enclosed of a space. And so where we see sort of mass death or mass injury from tear gas is when it's been fired into a really small enclosed space, uh, the back of a truck, a prison cell, a car, um, children have died from it going inside of a house. Um, And so if... It's used on people in those kind of confined spaces. You're much more likely to have a serious injury. The other way, of course, that people get really harmed by tear gas is when they get hit with the canisters, the grenades themselves.
1: So, Anna, I I can't help but point out you know this is called a non-lethal tool and yet you've just mentioned that it does in fact kill people is that am i hearing that right
2: yes there's also a lot of contention over the term non-lethal um And that's why there's been an argument that we should call them less lethal instead, with the idea that they're less likely to kill rather than that they are somehow incapable of killing. But um, what I tend to ask when this terminology comes up is, can you please describe to me what a less lethal death looks like?
1: It, It truly is extremely startling and very scary.
2: Yeah, and that's a really important part of its design, that it is so scary and startling and traumatizing and that you remember that moment of having it happen to you the first time or the hundredth time. Um, And it was designed intentionally to be like that. It was supposed to make you feel like you were dying and that that was why you had to, to disperse. That's why you had to get away. Also in early advertisements, we see this idea that it makes the protesters choke and cry and they look silly and they look stupid and that that's really useful for police propaganda.
1: Wow. OK, so actually just trying to like embarrass protesters and make them look dumb.
2: Yeah, and what they used to call, because of course it was the 1920s, so what they used to call destroying the mob spirit. Tear gas was intentionally designed to make people afraid, to make them not want to go and be part of protests, uh, to, to fear what it would be like to be in that assembled space.
1: If people are in a situation where they might be exposed to tear gas, is there anything that they can do to protect themselves? So
2: tear gas, because it gets into your eyes and because it gets in through your nose and your, and your mouth, anything that covers those parts of your face would help prevent it from uh, being as painful. The only study that's been done in a kind of academic world is... Um, It says that water is by far the best thing to use to flush it out of your eyes, to clean off your skin. Yeah, so I know there's all these formulas that go around, and um, I luckily have not been to your guest multiple times and tried all of those formulas. So I think we also need to say, you know, like activist knowledge versus academic knowledge here. Um, But the the only study that does exist um, says
1: use water. Wow. Okay. Because I've seen people use a lot of milk in the U.S. I also have a friend who recently told me that lemon juice helps. Um, So there's no evidence that that might be better than water? There's no
2: peer-reviewed scientific evidence that says that. The lemon thing has been going on since the very, very beginning. Urine is the other one. I don't know if you want that in your podcast. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes, I definitely want that in my podcast. Are you kidding? Uh, I definitely don't want anything coming back to me if a bunch of people start
2: peeing on each other after this podcast.
1: Cool. I will. I will take the brunt of those emails. What about the environment? If it gets deployed in parks and large outdoor spaces, is that also a concern? Tear gas, we have to remember, is a toxin. It's a poison. If
2: it gets into water, it can contaminate a water supply. In fact, there are professional cleaning companies who specialize in the removal of tear gas.
1: But, you know, if it's getting deployed in in the middle of Brooklyn or Manhattan, I'm not seeing any cleaning crews going after that right now.
2: No, and it actually, in the same way that the police, if they, someone gets injured from them firing something, are meant to go and care for that injured person. Uh, likewise, we would think as a, as a public service, that part of the policing would be that if you use the tear gas, you also are responsible for cleaning it up. Uh, but to my knowledge, that just isn't, is not part of the practice.
1: Even though tear gas is banned from use in warfare under the Chemical Weapons Convention, domestic police forces continue to use versions of it to disperse crowds and, as they say, regain control. So, from a policing standpoint, do you think it's effective?
2: I mean, tear gas is very good at clearing an area in the immediacy. What tear gas is not good at is to actually address any of the underlying concerns or reasons for why the protest is taking place. Tear gas is quite a threat and challenge to democracy as the use of tear gas often confronts the freedom to assembly and the freedom to speech.
1: Based on the images that you've seen about the protests in the U.S. right now, what do you think of the way tear gas has been used recently in the United States? Is it being used appropriately during these Black Lives Matter protests?
2: What has really amazed me looking at the footage that's coming through of the current protests is that in many of these instances, we're seeing a very aggressive, very offensive use of tear gas that does not at all look like what is in police training manuals um, or in police protocols that we are seeing, for example, a lot of use of it in enclosed spaces. We're seeing a lot of use of it at point blank or very close range. We're seeing it fired at parts of the body it shouldn't be fired at. We're seeing it be uh, fired very often at people who are not provoking the police and certainly in situations where the police have no reason to fear for their lives or safety.
1: Anna Feigenbaum is an associate professor of communication and digital media at Bournemouth University in the UK. And she's the author of Tear Gas, from the battlefields of World War I to the streets of today. Anna, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Duem-Ross, but you don't have to say it that way. We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. Skylar Swenson and Will Reed produce the show. Amy Drovdowska is our editor. Our audio engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music, and we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back on Tuesday. Later, nerds.